This is a talk that I gave in sacrament meeting on July 16th, 2017. That date was a special day to me, an anniversary of sorts, for reasons uh, that I won't be sharing, but uh, I thought it fitting at the time to uh, share this talk. Today is Palm Sunday as I'm recording this, uh, March 28th of 2021, as I contemplate everything that the Savior did from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday over the course of a week, I'm eternally grateful for the Savior. So without Anything further, I'd like to share my talk on the Atonement of Jesus Christ with you today. I begin my talk today with the story of two brothers. They are two brothers in a large family. I believe that if this story were to be made into a Hallmark made-for-television movie, it would start with these two brothers playing happily together outside playing tag, jumping in the leaves, and taking turns pushing each other on a swing as happy, upbeat music plays in the background. Then the scene would begin to darken, and more somber music would play as the brothers grew, and the younger brother became increasingly jealous of his older brother's accomplishments. This jealousy would grow to full-on anger, outrage, and hatred of his older brother, and disrespect towards his father. Then one day, their father came to all his children with a plan. He asked for a volunteer to fulfill the most crucial part of the plan. Jehovah, our eldest brother, answered, Here am I, send me. I will go down and perform this atonement of which you speak. I will pay for the sins and weaknesses of these my siblings so that they, like me, may return to thy presence with glorified, resurrected bodies. Lucifer, who is also a spirit child of Heavenly Father, and therefore Jehovah's and our spirit brother, also spoke up that day. In essence, what he said might have sounded like this. Wait a second here. There is a problem with Father's plan. You see, it depends on your choice to follow Jehovah and his counsel. What about those who don't want to follow Jehovah? What about those who will get confused and make bad choices because of our separation from Father? Would not a better plan be to remove the opportunity to make bad choices so that we can never make a mistake? Thus, they would have perfect bodies and have no need for Jehovah and his atonement. However, Heavenly Father knew that Lucifer's plan would not accomplish the purpose of his plan, which is so that we can become like him. Jehovah and those who followed him fought against Lucifer and the third of the hosts of heaven that wanted his plan. Lucifer was cast out of Father's presence for rebellion and would forevermore be known as Satan or the devil, the father of all lies. However, the war between these two brothers continues on earth. 
Adam and Eve were our first mortal parents, and what I can only assume was an effort to show the flaws in Heavenly Father's plan, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey the commandment of God to not partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eve first partook and became a fallen mortal. Adam then also partook of the bitter fruit, so he would not be left alone man in paradise. I do not have time today to go through the complexities of the fall, but I can only imagine Satan saying to himself, You fools, you have disobeyed Father, and now you must suffer the consequences of your decisions. You must now earn your bread by the sweat of thy brow. You will suffer pain, heartache, sickness, fatigue, depression, anxiety, and death. You could have chosen my plan and avoided all of this. But as always, but as is always the case, Satan did not understand the mind of God. Heavenly Father knew that all these things are necessary in order for us to learn and progress so that we may become like him. The fall was always part of his plan and was a necessary step. In fact, it is one of the three pillars of his plan, which includes the creation and the fall. But the third and most important pillar was yet to come. And thus, in the meridian of time, Jehovah himself came to earth as the son of Mary, his mortal mother, and Elohim, our immortal heavenly father. He was given the name of Yeshua, or Joshua, by, mother, sorry, by Mary's husband, Joseph. We are probably much more familiar with the Greek form of his name, Jesus, meaning God is help, or simply Savior. He later would be called by the title of Christ, meaning Messiah, or the Anointed One. For Jesus was anointed to the work which he was born to perform in the Grand Council in Heaven before the world was. That work involves offering the help of God to all mankind. We don't learn much about his youth from the scriptures. We learn that the proper Jewish rituals were performed at the proper times according to the law of Moses. We learn that while he was a small child, his death was sought by King Herod, and that Joseph fled with his small family to the safety of Egypt. We learn that at a young age, he had a great understanding of the scriptures, but that he did not start off with a fullness. The scriptures say that he received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. The boy grew into a man and began his earthly ministry. He went about not only doing good, but teaching others how to do likewise. He healed the sick, mended up the brokenhearted, brought strength to the infirm, mobility to the lame, sight to the blind, and life to the dead, Overcome the, overcoming the effects of the fall by his presence, his love, and his power. I imagine that Satan looked on at all of this and thought to himself, Oh, Jehovah was always the answer. This must stop. He is destroying everything I have worked so hard to build. The persecution against Jesus grew and grew until one Passover weekend, the Savior of the world knew that the moment of his greatest test had come. He partook of the Passover feast with his closest associates, his apostles. 
Then he introduced the sacrament with the command, This do in remembrance of me. He understood something which I suspect Satan did not, and which definitely the leaders of the Jews did not, that his love and power existed well before his cries as a newborn pierced the air of Bethlehem, and were destined to continue well after his mortal feet were no longer walking the shores of Galilee or the streets of Jerusalem. Later that night, Christ entered a small forest of olive trees just outside of Jerusalem, known as the Garden of Gethsemane. He took his three senior apostles, Peter, James, and John, deeper into the garden and asked them to pray as he went a little further. There waiting for him was Satan. Despite the admonition of the Savior to pray that they fall not into temptation, the apostles felt the temptations of the father of lies and began to complain in their hearts, wondering if Jesus be the Messiah. Jesus began to feel the weight of the sins of the world, and the scriptures say he was sore amazed. One scriptural scholar states that the original Greek is perhaps better translated as terrified surprise. Perfect and sinless, he now felt the sensations and effects of sin, the guilt anguish, darkness, turmoil, depression, anger, and physical sickness that sin and mortality bring, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people. It not only surprised him, it terrified him. As Elder Maxwell said, imagine Jehovah, the creator of this and other worlds, astonished. Jesus knew cognitively what he must do but not experientially. He had never personally known the exquisite and exacting process of an atonement before. Thus, when the agony came in its fullness, it was so much, much worse than even he with his unique intellect had ever imagined. End quote. Our mortal minds are not meant to fully comprehend the hell that Jesus went through nearly 2,000 years ago in Gethsemane. But to give us a glimpse of his suffering, I turn to the scriptures. Lehi taught his son Jacob, Redemption cometh in and through the holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Behold, he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law. Alma taught, He shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people. Christ didn't just suffer for our sins. He also suffered for all our afflictions and trials of mortality in all their shapes and sizes. Through revelation given to Joseph Smith, we learn that through him all might be saved. But how many is all? It is estimated that 60 to 70 billion people have lived on this earth. In the book of Moses, we read that Jesus has created worlds without number. If it were possible that we could number the particles of the earth, or even millions of earths like this, it would not be a beginning to the number of his creations. Many of these have been or will be populated by one can only guess at how many billions of Heavenly Father's children. All except one have sinned. All 
have felt the trials and limitations of mortality. Christ paid for all of it in what Elder Maxwell called the awful arithmetic of the atonement. Elder Maxwell also said, Jesus always deserved and always had the Father's full approval, but when he took upon our sins, sorry, took our sins upon him of divine necessity, required by justice, he experienced instead the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. During this time of deep despair, Jesus cried out to God using the very personal Abba, meaning Daddy or Papa. All things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. As the crushing weight of the atonement came upon him, Christ feared he would shrink or fail and ask for another way. It was too much, and he feared he was not strong enough and that he would fail. Jesus had never known doubt before. He had said to his chief apostle, who had just walked on water, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now Jesus knew what it was to doubt and fear. Nevertheless, he said, Not my will, but thine be done. Andrew C. Skinner taught, Quote, when we acknowledge that Jesus' submission to the Father's will was made in the face of having thought about other ways of accomplishing the Father's plan, we also acknowledge that he experienced every human emotion, every human thought. Indeed, he descended below every human thought and every human desire. He demonstrated the human impulse to look for ways out of the horrors and agonies that constituted Gethsemane. The Savior's human nature wrestled with his divine nature, yet he was perfectly obedient. End quote. How moving is this scene? Under his extreme circumstances, Jesus pleads with his Papa to remove his pain and suffering. Christ has been the perfect child. He has never done anything wrong and has always honored, loved, and respected his Father. But the one thing Elo- Elohim could not, would not do, is the one thing his only begotten is asking for, to have the bitter cup removed. It can correctly be said that during that night, two perfect divine beings suffered and partook of the bitter cup placed before them. In the words of Elder Holland, quote, I am a father, inadequate to be sure, but I cannot comprehend the burden it must have been for God in his heaven to witness the deep suffering and crucifixion of his beloved son in such a manner. His every impulse and instinct must have been to stop it, to send angels to intervene, but he did not intervene. He endured what he saw because it was the only way that a saving vicarious payment could be made for the sins of all his other children. I am eternally grateful for a perfect father and his perfect son, neither of whom shrank from the bitter cup nor forsook the rest of us who are imperfect, who fall short and stumble, who too often miss the mark. End quote. Jesus was left alone and handed over completely to the wrath of Satan, his and our greatest enemy. Satan threw everything he had at the Savior. I cannot begin to imagine the immense jealousy and hatred that Satan has for Jesus. 
Satan threw everything he had at the Savior of the world, desiring nothing more than to break Jesus. I expect that all of us looked on with great trepidation, knowing that during these moments everything hung in the balance and it was not without risk. King Benjamin taught, He shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every poor, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and abominations of his people. Of this passage of scripture, Andrew Skinner said, The omnipotent God of the universe would for a time shed his status and power and condescend to come to earth. He would, as the word condescend literally means, come down with the people to suffer far more than any human could, under, could withstand and not succumb to death, including temptations of every kind. He would experience these temptations to such an extent that justice could not say, you really didn't know what it means to be human. Elder Talmadge taught, No other man, however great his powers of physical or mental endurance, could have suffered so, for his human organism would have succumbed, and syncope would have produced unconsciousness and welcome oblivion. In that hour of anguish, Christ met and overcame all the horrors that Satan, the prince of this world, could inflict. You see, Despite all my tears, this is a happy story. These are tears of gratitude. Jesus came off conqueror. He descended below all things, that he might be in all and through all things. Gethsemane means olive press, similar to the crushing weight of an olive press that squeezes out the juice of the olives. Christ, under the weight of the atonement, bled from every pore, the first time an olive press is used each season, the olive oil runs red for the first few moments until it eventually turns to its normal golden color. These olive presses were also frequently used as wine presses as well. It gives special meaning to Isaiah's writings as he messianically declared, I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people none were with me. Their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. He did it! Just as Adam partook of the bitter fruit in order to not be left alone man in paradise, Christ drank of the bitter cup in order to not be left alone man in paradise. Christ overcame Satan yet again, heralding the truth that because he did it alone, we never have to. He will never leave those who seek him. But unfortunately for Jesus, it was not over. As he left the garden, he was betrayed by Judas and arrested. Exhausted from his battle in Gethsemane, he was taken before various earthly judges and eventually condemned to death by crucifixion, one of the most horrible tortures ever invented by mankind. With nails driven through his hands, wrists, and feet, he hung on the cross and suffered the ridicule of Jew and Gentile. Through all his suffering in Gethsemane and on the cross, Jesus maintained his complete control over death. He could not die without himself allowing it to occur. As he hung on the cross, he eventually prayed to the Father, 
saying, It is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He then bowed his head and willingly gave up the ghost as his spirit was separated from his body. To ensure he was dead, his spirit was thrust into his side and blood and water gushed forth. As a physician, I have always found this interesting. Several scholars have postulated that the immense pressure placed on the body during the process of crucifixion caused swelling to the heart, eventually resulting in its rupture and subsequent filling of the surrounding pericardium, where the blood coagulated and separated from the almost colorless, watery serum. If this is true, and the spear was thrust in the left side and ruptured the pericardium, then, as Elder Talmadge believed, the Lord Jesus died of a broken heart. Christ's body was then semi-hastily placed in a tomb before the Sabbath late on a Friday night that would forever be known as good. For this story also has a happy ending. Sunday came and the tomb was empty. Christ's spirit was restored to his perfect, resurrected body. Of his own choice, he kept the marks of crucifixion in his hands, feet, and side. We are forever engraven upon his palms, those very hands through which he performs his work. So what does this all mean for you and me? Simply put, it means everything. More precisely, yet still speaking broadly, it means the effects of the fall are overcome. Physical death is overcome for all mankind who have or will come to earth and others like it. We will all stand one day with perfect resurrected bodies that are free from the weaknesses of mortality. Spiritual death or separation from God is also overcome for all, at least for a period of time. For we will all one day stand before that God who gave us life in order to be judged according to our works, and more importantly, according to who we have become. A few months ago, I asked Brother Shortridge to speak on grace. I very much appreciated his words that day and wished to add some of my own thoughts. First, I agree with everything he said. The scriptures are clear that we are saved by grace. Elder McConkie summarized it best when he wrote, There is no salvation of any kind, nature, or degree that is not bound to Christ in his atonement. If this is true, then why do we speak of the works of salvation that we must do in order to ob obtain eternal life? It is true. Baptism, confirmation, the gift of the Holy Ghost, priesthood ordination for men, endowments and sacred covenants made in the temple of God and sealing between a man and woman are the saving ordinances required for all who desire exaltation. But I think sometimes our focus on these causes us to lose understanding and look past the mark. Perhaps we think that if we do enough good works, we can make up for our mistakes on some cosmic scoreboard somewhere in the heavens in order to win our salvation. We swing the pendulum too far in the opposite direction. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. It is just as incorrect to say that we can be saved through our own works as it is to say that we can lie a little 
steal a little, and when we die, God will beat us with a few stripes, and we will be saved. The ordinances of salvation are not designed only to save us, but to change us. Their purpose is to help us become more like Christ, who is exactly like his Father, so much so that they are one. Even that change is only possible through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And it is only through his atonement that we can make lasting change. Mormon taught us that all good things come from Christ. Even good things that happen to people who do not believe in him still occur because of him. He makes it all possible. To the youth, or adult for that matter, who asks the question, can't I just sin now and repent later before I go on a mission or go to the temple to get married, for example? My short answer is, of course you can. Because of his atonement, there is nothing you can do, think, or say that will take you outside of his redeeming power and love. But I also say, if that is what you are thinking, You are also looking past the mark of the purpose of this life. The purpose is not merely to return to heaven, being somehow cleansed from sin. That was actually Satan's plan. But Heavenly Father knew better. The purpose is to learn, grow, and most of all come closer to Christ and become like him through his grace. He is the key. He is everything. Once again, what does the atonement mean to us? Everything. Brad Wilcox tells the story of a young man named Tyler who approached him near the end of the term in his Book of Mormon class and asked if it would be possible to write his final exam early. Brother Wilcox knew that if he made an exception for one student, he would have to make exceptions for others, and he began thinking of the best way to explain to Tyler that this would not be possible. Before Brother Wilcox was able to give his answer, Tyler spoke again. You see, I was just diagnosed with a brain tumor, and the doctors need to operate as quickly as they can. All Brad could do was hug Tyler. Further questions were asked and answers given. Tyler was given permission to not write the exam at all. After a biopsy, it was determined that the brain mass was malignant. Tyler spent the next six months going through radiation and chemotherapy, wondering what was worse, the disease or the cure. He lost 40 pounds as he saw his athletic frame melt away, and along with it, all his plans, goals, and dreams for the future. In the words of Brother Wilcox, quote, Tyler didn't need Christ to save him from death and hell at that moment. He just needed support to get through difficult days and sleepless nights. Right then, Tyler did not need Christ to save him from his sins as much as he needed him to strengthen him in his sorrows. Christ did not perform the atonement to free us from suffering, but to be able to accompany us in our suffering. What's more, he did not perform the atonement just to be able to understand us, but to assist us. 
During the sacrament service one Sunday, while we were living in Edmonton, one of the young children in the ward got a hold of their parents' phone. Soon after, right there in the middle of sacrament, as the deacons were passing the emblems of Christ's body and blood, came blaring from that phone the singing voice of Katy Perry. Katy Perry. The song she was singing is called Unconditional. It contains the words, Acceptance is the key to be truly free. Will you do this thing for me? There is no fear now, so let go and just be free. For I will love you unconditionally. I thought to myself, how fitting a song for what is occurring right now. The the emblems of the sacrament are of course also emblems of Christ's unconditional love for us. For those of you who have suffered through one of my talks before, you may have noticed that often... I talk about a hymn that is fitting to my topic that day. You may have wondered how many favorite songs I have. A lot. But my all-time favorite church song comes from the children's songbook and is entitled, I Feel My Savior's Love. Its words go like this. I feel my Savior's love in all the world around me. His spirit warms my soul through everything I see, I feel my Savior's love as gentleness enfolds me, and when I kneel to pray, my heart is filled with peace. And then my favorite verse, I'll share my Savior's love by serving others freely. In serving, I am blessed. In giving, I receive. He knows I will follow him. Give all my life to him. I feel my Savior's love, the love he freely gives me. On a recent trip to Utah, Rachel and I went to the North Visitor Center on Temple Square and sat and stared at the statue of the Christus for a while. For those of you who have not seen it, it is a statue of Christ with his nail engraven palms stretched out with open arms with a mural of planets in space behind him. As we were walking down the ramp, a young family was walking up. A young child was staring at the planets on the mural and asked his parents, is this what heaven looks like? I thought to myself, wait until you get to the top. Because yes, this is exactly what heaven looks like. Christ with arms open wide, waiting to encircle us about eternally in the arms of his love. I bear my witness of his love. I know that he lives and that he loves us enough to give everything he is to us. And I so testify In his sacred name, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.